Good morning, Oaks Church. My name is Ed Rocha. I'm one of the elders here. And again, this morning I have the responsibility and the privilege of bringing the Word of God uh, for us, for His glorification and our edification. Um, we continue our series in the book of Daniel, for those that have been here. And we get today to chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, open in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. We use the ESV translation, so if you're doing on your devices, or if you need a Bible, we have a couple in the, uh, in the back. Pastor Chris covered the second part of uh, chapter 2 last week, so we're going to take from there. Now, two years ago, almost precisely two years ago, I preached in this same chapter here, if you guys might remember. I will be honored if somebody remembers that. Uh, Chris for sure won't remember. He was not around at that, at that time. Um, but uh, today we're going to touch on a, a few different lessons from this chapter. And we could preach again next Sunday on this chapter and there would be other lessons uh, from it. It's a phenomenal one. It's one of my favorites and looks like I say that every time I come here. But that's okay. Now, chapter 3 is unique in the book of Daniel. No visions, no dreams, no Daniel. <laughs> Daniel doesn't appear at all in this uh, chapter. Uh, we have to assume, based on what we know about Daniel, that he was not in the event that we're going to be talking about. I mean, knowing what we know about his character, he, he would be together with his friends that we'll read about here. So he probably was somewhere else in the business meeting in a travel or something that he was not around. Another uniqueness is that's it for the three friends of Daniel. This is the last time their names are mentioned in the book of Daniel or in, in the Bible. So it's a unique chapter. So it works well as a almost a standalone um, message there. So chapter three, let's read together. It's, it's a little bit long, but it's a uh, very, very clear, and again, I imagine your brain is going to be creating pictures of what we're going to be reading now, and that's probably a good thing. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then, King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and language, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whomever does not fall down and worship immediately will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, made the decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought this man before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast in a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. This, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire, killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the burning fiery furnace. Then, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. 
Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had, did not have any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against Anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be thrown limb for limb and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that was preserved so we can read this morning, we can learn about you, about your character, about uh, how you treat uh, your people, Lord. Please uh, be with us this morning, that your Holy Spirit be speaking to us this morning so your name is glorified and we are edified by your word, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. We'll have three lessons that we'll take from this chapter. As I said before, I mean, I was at some points even wanting to take another detour and pick another lesson because it's so rich. But we'll take three. God's exclusivity, God's deliverance, and God's salvation. So we're going to go through that passage and stop at some points and, and look at that. So verse 1 starts with the statement that Nebuchadnezzar... And I mean, I think that his name is like 20 times in the text that I read, and it's not exactly the easiest word for a Brazilian to pronounce, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, I practiced it. Anyhow, he made this statue of gold. So again, this is not a vision or a dream. Let's not get confused with uh, the other instance in this book where it's talking about visions and, and dreams. Now, chapter 1 and chapter 2 gave a time reference of when those things were, were happening. Chapter 3 does not. So our first inclination would be to imagine that it's a flowing timeline and this happens right after chapter 2. But there are some indications that that may not be the case. The Septuagint, is that the way to pronounce it? Which is the Greek version of the Hebrew and Aramaic writings of the Old Testament, that was actually the one being used at Jesus' times, starts this chapter saying, in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, blah, 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 the, the rest uh, happened. So it makes some sense that this would be year 18th of his reign, which would put 16 years after chapter 2, because that was the second year of his reign. Because if you Consider, at the end of that chapter, you heard that from Pastor Chris last Sunday. He seemed to understand God's power and God's message that his kingdom was the head of gold and there would be another kingdom smaller than his, blah, 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 the whole sequence. 
He seemed to have understood that from his words at the end. He said, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So he seemed to have understood that at the end of chapter 2. But now if you consider, 16 years have passed. He's still the big king. Actually, if that is the correct timeline, this would be around the time that he did the third invasion in Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. So in his mind, he's thinking, well, maybe I was mistaken. The God of the Hebrews are not, is not bigger than my God. I mean, I just went there and I completely destroyed the temple of their God, the walls of Jerusalem, everything. My God's bigger than their God. So he decides to make this statue. Again, there are some assumptions that I'm making here, but this kind of makes sense that he's now making a, a, a big statue, all of gold. Almost you could imply that he's saying, ah, there is not a silver, bronze, or iron things coming afterwards. The whole thing is, is gold. My, my kingdom will continue. Now, let's stop for a minute. There are, again, some discussions and the commentaries about was this a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself? It's more likely a statue of his god, Nabu or, uh, Nabu or Nebo, uh, that he made because there's no finding of any Babylonian king having a statue of themselves made. So it's more likely a statue of his god. And in the ESV, it's in cubits, but we can translate that to something we understand better. This was 90 feet tall. Okay, 90 feet tall, about a nine-story building. Or for a little more reference, the head would probably take from the floor to this beam here, proportion, I mean, to the thing. What a very skinny uh, statue. I mean, maybe to make his god look a little more fit, because if you think 10 to 1 is a little more than most of us proportionally are. In Brazil, we have the statue of Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro. Probably most of you have seen that uh, in, in pictures and things like that. That one is 98 feet tall. And you can see from the beach, it's on a 2,300 feet uh, mountain near the beach, but, and you can see it there. Statue of Liberty, 111 uh, feet from the head to toe, not counting the base or the arm with the, the torch. So a little bigger, but about that size. So that, that was a massive statue. And Nebuchadnezzar calls all the officials. I'm not going to repeat all those uh, names of the officials. He gathered them all in this plain of Dura. We don't know exactly what that was uh, located, but I would imagine this statue would be quite visible for the people in that uh, plane. And if you read the text, and I, I went through that, and you heard all the musical instruments, I did some analysis, and I think I know which song they were playing. Bear with me for a minute. In the list of instruments, there is bagpipe. So I'm pretty sure it was an early rendition of Amazing Grace. Because every time I hear a bagpipe, they're playing Amazing Grace. So that probably was an early rendition of Amazing Grace that they were playing there. But regardless, let's see what happens next uh, after the, the music stops. And, I mean, they, the king provides a, a very persuasive 
argument or motivation to follow his recommendation. Whomever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. So apparently the furnace was on site, was nearby. Some commentators say possibly even where they had melted the material to make the, the statue, but it was in this same uh, location. Now imagine uh, when everybody in this plane fall down and three guys stay standing. That's the proverbial uh, sticking like a sore thumb, right? I mean, that would be very visible. So immediately, some Chaldeans, Chaldeans have two meanings, typically in the Bible, can just refer to the uh, ethnical group of the people from Babylon, or can also mean some of the, the magicians and sorcerers of the king there. But in any case, they come and they say, oh, king, didn't you do this decree? I mean, that's, that's funny how they always kind of refresh the memory of the king about what he did. And this man, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, that's where I want to stop for a minute and talk a little bit about God's exclusivity. And curiously, I was in the children's area earlier today and I saw that our kids, are they have a card here. We are to worship God alone. So our kids are learning about the exclusivity of God there. I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they went to the children's ministry at Oaks, Jerusalem, they had a card just like this, and they learned about that because it obviously, it was very known because it was the very first commandment, right? I mean, Exodus 20, 3 and 5, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself they carve the image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or it's in earth beneath or that's in the water, under the water. You shall not bow down to them and serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And I would have to say as well that those three guys, probably they had made a commitment to this learning that they got when they were kids from their parents ahead of time. They were decided to do that. I can't imagine them trying to communicate with each other when they're listening to the music. What are we going to do now? That's a conviction that they, they carried, they had the, with them. Now, you would think, could they have just complied? I mean, on the outside. Okay, I'll bow down. I'll be praying to God. When I'm bowing down, I'll pretend that I'm worshiping the, the image, but I'll be praying to God. So no fire furnace, not thrown in there. So I pretend I'm complying. Well, that would be nothing but a compromise, right? And again, we now live in modern-day Babylon, and we may be exposed to situations like that, right? I mean, everybody's doing this. Why am I going to go against the, the flow and stand up for, for something? Ugh, that's going to make my life so hard. I mean, I'm going to have trouble at work or in the family or with friends and uh, whatever might be the situation. 
couldn't we just quietly comply? I mean, in my heart, I know what I'm doing. I, I'm okay there. Well, that's not what God is calling us to do, right? I mean, the, the first commandment says that very clearly. And I heard once, and I, I keep repeating that, we almost only fail to follow the other nine commandments if we fail this one first. We normally will fail in the other areas when we put ourselves or something else ahead of God, before God, as the commandment says. So this is fundamental. I mean, it, it's non-negotiable. God is first. It's the only one that should sit on the, on the throne. We have a lot of things in our days that attract us. It could be the God of comfort, wealth, career, sports, freedom, family, friendships. And again, many of these are good things. But the moment they take the place of God in our lives, it's idolatry. No matter how good the object is, the moment it sits on the throne, it became your God. It becomes idolatry. One of the commentators I was uh, reading said, uh, inst instead of uh, the way Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, who will deliver you from my hands? Maybe we should say, who will deliver me from me? Because we are probably the ones that we put sitting on the throne, right? Our pride, our, uh, our lust, that's what puts us on the throne. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, that's normally what makes us go to the throne and put ourselves there. So that's the first one. Our God is a jealous God. He's not negotiating. Well, it, it, our friends were in a, in, in a society that had multiple gods. So even towards the end of the chapter, chapter 2, or again on chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar seems to realize that God is the only God, he's probably adding him to the pantheon of gods that he already had. It's not how our God expects us to follow him. It's exclusive. It's just him. I mean, that may not be tolerant, may not be a popular way to approach uh, our relationship with God today, but that's the God that, it's, that is shown in the Bible. If we go back to the text, we resume on verse 13. When Nebuchadnezzar becomes furious that someone is disobeying him. It's kind of funny that he brings the guys, even though, again, the decree was they should immediately be thrown on the fire furnace. He gives them another chance. And he actually, he asks a question. He doesn't wait for them to answer because maybe he even liked those guys. I mean, they were doing a good job for him in the, in the government. Uh, so, he, is it true? that you are doing this, but if you have a, offer them another, another chance. And then it's when he makes the, this brilliant statement. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's what I picked the title for the sermon. Who is the God that will deliver you? And I, I have to read again their answer because it's, it's emblematic. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, 
and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. A few points there. First of all, Daniel or anybody else referring to the king would normally say, O king, live forever. O king. And these guys go, looks like they almost put their hands on his shoulder and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to answer you on this. We don't have to defend God. Okay, he is big enough to defend himself. Now, there is a little dilemma that goes here, and I love to see the understanding that these three guys, 25, 2600 years ago, had. They say, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He will deliver us from your hand. But if not, know that we are still not going to worship. So, what are they doing here? If you read carefully, they make two statements. They say, he's able to deliver us from the fire furnace. He will deliver us from your hand. So when they say, if not, he's probably referring to the first one. Because the second one, they, they are assertive. They say, he will deliver us from your hands. So probably the part that they are saying, if not, is if, the, if God does not deliver us from the fire uh, furnace, okay? And they insist, they've, and Tim Keller uh, puts this way that I, I, I love the way he said it, it resonates a lot with me. Love God for what he is, not what he can do for you. I mean, these three men are not being faithful to God because God gave him a card saying, you'll be faithful to me, I will deliver you uh, from the uh, fiery furnace. They don't have that, and they knew they didn't. They say, if not, we'll still worship him. We're not doing this to be rewarded by God with his protection. We'll do this because he is God. That's a phenomenal understanding that... Uh, this, this boy's head, well, boys, they would be about probably early 30s at this point if we use that math that I mentioned in the beginning. This brings us to the second lesson, God's deliverance, okay? The word deliver is used by the king and twice by this uh, young man in that dialogue that we just reread. And it's interesting that they say, that God could deliver, was able to deliver them from the fire. Do you guys see that? God could have extinguished that fire. And the king would not even have opportunity to throw them in there. <laughs> Gone. And the verse in the Bible would be something like this. But before King Nebuchadnezzar could throw them in the fire, a strong wind came to, from the west, from the great city of Jerusalem, and the fire in the furnace was extinguished. Sound biblical. But that's not what happened, right? They were thrown. So they were not delivered from the fire. They were delivered through the fire. They went through it before they were uh, delivered. The real verse says, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. 
Now, you could say, well, but one way or another, they were protected, they were delivered. Yes, they could also be delivered by the fire from the king's hands to the father's arms. That would be a perfectly possible outcome. Isn't that what happened with Stephen when he was stoned? At some point, it happened with Paul when he was decapitated, with Peter when he was crucified upside down, uh, according to secular history. Uh, so, again, the boys had the understanding that the Lord was able to deliver them. He could deliver them. They didn't know. They knew they would not be in the king's hands. Out of your hands, either protected from the fire or through the fire or by the fire. In the last instance, the verse would probably say something like that. The fire consumed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were taken to the presence of God. It's not, but it could be, could have been that way. So, God was able, and he chose to deliver them through the fire. In his sovereignty, that's how he wanted to handle that situation. Now, let's bring it closer to us, something that some of us are going through. Imagine you go see your doctor, and the doctor says, I don't like what I see here. This lump could be, could be a cancer. We need to do some investigation. You probably would be praying to be delivered from the fire. And then you go, do the test, come back. It's true. You do have a cancer. So you probably start praying that God deliver you through the cancer. But it's also possible that God would be saying, I'll bring you to me. I'll deliver you by this cancer. So we don't know it's in God's hand, but we know the result. John Piper says, it's a win-win. If we stay, God wants us here. I like it here. I'll continue doing his ministry. If he wants me with him, I'll be better. I mean, Paul says that as well, right? For me, dying is, is profit. So, God will deliver, possibly in different ways. Let's go back to the text. We are in verse 19 through 23 now, when there is this description of the grueling events of the young man being thrown in the fire. Uh, but it's on verse 24, 25 that we read about the supernatural side of this story. Up to now, it could be any tyrant of the old times doing what they would do. You don't follow me, you, you pay the price. Uh, this comes to the supernatural thing. There are obviously two phenomena that are explained here, or that are unexplainable to the human logic here. First, the guys are unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. I don't think they could hear them whistling, but they were probably whistling. The same song that the, the instruments were playing a few minutes ago, I believe, but I'm sorry, guys, that's... <laughs> delete that part. Jeff, rewind and delete that part. I don't know, they were whistling. <laughs> Anyhow, they are walking there, and there is a fourth person with them. And I have no idea what Nebuchadnezzar saw on that fourth person. But he says, one that looks like the son of God. I mean, it's a most unanimous in all commentaries that I looked at that this is very, very, very likely 
theophany, an appearance of God in the pre-incarnated times. So this is probably Jesus Christ present there, walking in the fire with his three servants there. I get goosebumps just to think about that. Can you imagine? You're walking around. The fire is not consuming you. I mean, you should be cremated by that, by that point. And Jesus is right there walking with you. Can't get much better than that. Now, continuing observing the text and, and picking some uh, curious things. Nebuchadnezzar gets closer to the, uh, to the furnace. And he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Come out. He never called the fourth guy to come out. I don't think he was. He wanted to face the son of God that he, he saw uh, inside there. He calls them out and he calls them servants of the of servants of God. Um, and then everybody observes that they don't even have smell of fire. I mean. I'm grilling meat for 30 minutes and I have small fire. I mean, these guys were walking inside a fiery furnace. Not even smell of fire. The only thing that got consumed was what was binding them. Supernatural. There is no natural explanation for that. And that takes me to the last lesson uh, here. Lesson three, God's salvation. Yes, I mean, we could continue exploring how the Lord walks with with us in trials. Actually, fire is a illustration for trials throughout the, the Bible. He walks with us through trials. God with us, Emmanuel. It's a precious lesson from these events. But I want to take a step back and look at it, the even bigger picture. Yes, those young men were faithful. But it stopped there. Everything else was completely beyond their power. There was absolutely nothing they could do to save themselves. They didn't try to convince the king to change his mind. They didn't use their communication skills to present some good arguments to the king that maybe he would convince them to, to let them go. We don't see them desperately spitting on the fire as they're approaching it to try to extinguish it so they wouldn't burn. We don't see them stomping on the coals inside the, or whatever was burning there, when they were inside the, the fire. Based on their power, their fate was completely unchangeable. There was absolutely nothing that they, they could do. It was 100% God's interference that saved them. God was with them and delivered them through the fire. His name was glorified as a result of that. We also had a fire in our future. The eternal separation of God was in our future. We deserve that. Uh, we're not worthy to be in God's presence by our, by our own means. We don't even meet our own standards, much less the standards from God to be worthy of being in his presence. So based on our power, our faith was completely unchangeable. I mean, we were marching towards the fire. No effort of our own could possibly work. But the same way that 2,600 years ago, God interfered again. He sent his son to live among us a perfect life, pleasing to God. 
to die for our sins, pay the price for our sins, come back to life, resurrect victorious. He paid the penalty himself. And observe that this, in this case, salvation is not through the fire, it's from the fire. He went alone and took the, pay the price. It, we're not, he's not walking with us through that fire. He did it for us. He protected us, he delivered us from the fire. Not going to see it. If we are in Christ, then we have 100% his doing, his grace, not our merits, not our works, nothing that we can do. We'll close with the words from Paul in his letter to Ephesians, famous chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, Deliverer, Savior, we thank you for your grace. Because we are in Christ, we became acceptable to you, Lord. We long for the day we'll be with you eternally, God. We want to be in your presence. We want to know you face to face. Lord, thank you for your word uh, this morning and continue working in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, Lord, as, as we continue meditating from your word this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.